Hello again, friends. Welcome to My Back 40 and the My Back 40 podcast. I'm your host, Steve O'Shaughnessy. No voice intros for you this week, but you should send them to me. It's so easy. Just whip out your device, record me something, and send it to myback40podcast at gmail.com. Feedback, guest suggestions. I love hearing from you, so don't be shy. Send me voice intros. Well, I don't really have much to talk about before this podcast, really, but there is an announcement I'd like to make. Let me just bring it up here. Our good friend, Megan Hakkinen, Okanagan-based endurance cyclist, will be hosting an online Zoom session about bikepacking and competitive self-supported racing. Whether you're contemplating your first overnighter, have experience with long tours, or are curious about dipping your toes into multi-day events, this presentation is for you. Bring your questions for the Q&A. And the date is March 22nd, 2023. The time is at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you should RSVP to Megan at Megan at bcwriters.ca. That's Megan, M-E-A-G-H-A-N at bcwriters, W-R-I-T-E-R-S dot C-A. And she'll send you a Zoom code. Megan Hakkinen is a transcontinental race, Trans Am bike race, North Cape 4000, Alberta Rockies 700, and Paris. Brest Paris Brevet Finisher. In addition to being a four times Everster, Megan holds the woman's FKT for the Big Lonely, the BC Epic 1000, and World 24 Hour Time Trial Championships. Megan Hackenden has been on the podcast before, so you should go back, check it out. We've had some great conversations, and she is an invaluable resource for all things endurance racing, bike pack racing, cycling in general. She's a great resource. So make sure you take advantage of this if you can. And again, that is uh, March 22nd, 2023. Put it in your calendar, 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you can email her at megan at bcwriters.ca for the Zoom code. All right. I just wanted to touch quickly on one thing is that I've started putting out early released podcasts on my Patreon. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash myback40 and you subscribe at the $5 a month level, you can get early access to episodes. I'm working really hard on getting this stuff out to you at a, in a timely manner. And I've got a bit of a bank of podcasts going right now. And I'm pretty stoked about that. So I'm going to have a few coming out every week for the next little bit. And those of you who want to get early access to those can support me on Patreon for $5 a month and you'll get early access. You know, it's it's hard for me to say these things, to 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 ask, and sometimes I feel like I'm begging for support. But if you find value in what I'm putting out there, like if you were to see me on the street, you'd want to buy me a cup of coffee or something like that, simple, you know, $3, $5 a month really helps me grow the podcast and it helps me. Situationally right now, things are not great for me. And uh, I put a lot of time and effort into this podcast, and I love this podcast. And the last few conversations have been so meaningful to me, and I've been able to really dive deep with people about doing hard things. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from all my guests. So if you find value and you want to support the podcast, that's a great way to do it. Join my Patreon for $5 a month, and you'll get early access to episodes. Another great way and a free way to support the podcast is to give it a five-star rating and a review on your favorite listening platform. Subscribe, share, rate, and review. I throw that out there all the time. That's the best way to uh, support me and also to support my sponsors of the show. I'm not going to get into it right now. I'm going to give you guys a break from the sponsorship ad reads this time. I'm going to put them at the end. I've got great promo codes running, so please listen all the way through to the end. And if you want to save some money and support my supporters, you're going to support me in return. 
and I appreciate you. And with that, I'm going to get right into the podcast. This week, I bring you a conversation with Jerry Kopak. Jerry reached out to me a few weeks ago requesting to be on the podcast. He wanted to share his personal adventure and how the simple act of riding a bike provided him with invaluable and deep insight. This is from the bio he sent me. After 10 soulless years in corporate America, Jerry founded a hospice and learned firsthand how precious our time really is. Following a series of his own crippling losses and armed with those lessons learned from working with people at the end of life, he set off on what was supposed to be a two-month bike tour that turned into nearly two years. Along the way, Jerry started to say, quote, bikes always win because of the freedom they give people and the places they take you. With an optimistic curiosity, he found his way through Madagascar, India, Nepal, China, Kyrgyzstan, Morocco, and Israel. Jerry soon realized that this time was a gift, that every day is a gift. Lessons learned from running a hospice became lessons lived, and with that, a continual question propelled him. Am I using my time well? Jerry's book, The World Spins By, is an account of his escape from corporate America and the road to discovering himself. In this episode, we take a deep dive into his stories and the lessons learned along the way, and I'm certain you'll enjoy listening to this conversation. So without further delay, I bring you Jerry Kopak. So you, you go like full on game show host, huh? With like the, uh, the handheld mic. I really like the handheld mic actually. Nice. Yeah. I, and you know what? It's, uh, it's super portable, right? So, I mean, I can put all my podcasting gear in this bin. Yeah. Right. So I was trying to hook up with, with, um, my buddy Jonathan uh, Hogue in Canmore, and I kept bringing my stuff back and forth. I don't need a stand, and, and this is like this would be the mic that Joe Rogan would use, right? Like, of course, like when right. he's doing stand up. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it makes my voice sound really awesome. <laughs> it, it, it is. You have a very strong presence, but you, you're. And I think. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think maybe it's, it, I don't know you, but maybe you have a strong presence anyways, but maybe it's the mic. Who knows? And you know what? There's another uh, theory behind it too is because I talk too much. So when, when I say something, I'll put the mic down, right? Because oh, if it's oh, right man. in my face, I'm going to be, it's a thing I deal with all the time. It's, it's like I'm constantly, unintentionally interjecting. My ex would call, I interrupt her all the time. And it's like, well, I thought we were having a conversation. This is interjection. I'm trying to have a conversation with you. It's not an interview. It's a conversation, right? So funny thing is, and I'm sure you've done, you realize this with all of your, with all of your interviews that you've done is you, you look for sort of cues to when that person is done speaking to when you can either interject a little bit, sort of play with their, their interaction or ask the next question. And my most recent interview that I did for warm showers, I was interviewing this woman and I just couldn't get her timing right. Mm. So I kept stumbling over the top of her cause she would pause and then I would think that she was done. And so I would kind of play off of what, what she was saying, dig a little bit deeper. And then she would start talking again. I was like, ah, ah, book, ah. And it's like, I'm just going to sit here until I know that you're done. And that's and why it's the only time it's ever happened to me where I couldn't read the room. And that's and you could see her, yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. And, so and that's why I asked you. To, that's why I asked you to connect on video. And I, there, I just okay. did it again. I just interrupted you again. <laughs> yeah. So for our warm showers interviews, we're we're recording audio and video, and we're posting them onto our YouTube channel, which is something new we haven't done until recently. But I don't know. Fuck it. Joe Rogan's doing video. Why shouldn't we do video? I'd like to do video. Um, I just don't want this. I want to keep this. 
I mean, I'm, I've, I've, I'm growing. There's growth, right? There's a double sure. growth from, from last year, actually. And, and I want to keep awesome. it. Uh, yeah, thanks. I want to keep it as simple as possible. I really want to keep it simple. I don't want to make it too complicated, but I like the idea of doing yeah. video, but then, yeah, then I'd have to worry about my hair and what I wear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got that issue too. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Um, I was just, uh, reading some of your stuff today. Um, hmm. your writing is excellent. Like the way you paint a picture and I like, what were you reading? Uh, I was reading just your la- your two, um, I wrote, uh, uh Turkey and Morocco. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. And, um, thank you. Oh yeah, man. And, uh, I, I got, um, I've been to Morocco, not on a bike. Um, but I definitely resonate with, with, um, there's something you said. I don't know if you said it in both, but just the idea of, of going into, um, a Muslim country. And I remember when I went to Morocco, a lot of people were, um, not happy. They were like, Oh, you're not going to go there. Are you, why would you go there? <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think I'm, I would never consider myself a worldly, a worldly person, but I know enough yeah. to know that all the rhetoric we see online and in the news, that's like a fraction of a fraction of a, a representation of the people there. And, and I, I felt the same way as you when I got there, you know, you get jerked around a little bit. Like when we were in, um, <clears throat> in the mountains, uh, Chef Shawan in, in, in the mountains, and we were just looking for our, our hotel, Dar Teray. Shout out to Dartere. And uh, you'd ask a couple people where it was, and they would take you to some other hotel or some other hotel. They're trying to help you, but they're trying also trying to make a living, and they're trying to get you <laughs> to go to their place, right? And then eventually, yeah. and, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then I remember I'm super transparent. So I was probably just like pissed. I was probably just like, fuck, man, just, I just want to get to where I need to go. We've been traveling. We just got off the bus. We've been running through this village with our packs. Hey. Let me ask you something. I want to interrupt you here. Okay. Uh, do you are you recording this? Do you want me to record this? I'm recording. Okay. Yeah, it's all good. I wasn't sure if it was go time or because these are all great stories. Yeah, I go right off the top. <laughs> Even when you were setting up, yeah, I'll just I'll edit some of that out. But um, but uh, I don't know if you can just flip a switch and, and start it. You can. But it, regardless, I'm I'm recording right now. But um, okay. uh, finally, the, a man came up and he's like. He's like, brother, where do you need to go? And I'm like, I need to go to Dartere. Come. And I just started following him through the labyrinth of, of, the, of the little village, right? And he turns around, he, he points, waves up to a door, and he says, there you are. And I was like, thank you. And I went to give him a Durham, right? Because everyone also usually wants money, right? Of course. He's like, no. Welcome. And then did the, you know, the two kisses. And he, and he was gone. Right. And it was just like, and then, and then it was such a, it was such a beautiful experience because one that 180'd my entire uh, day because it was starting off pretty crappy. And, and also um, right now my, my sister is actually uh, in India and she just texted, sorry, this is a tangent. She just messaged me today and she's fairly well, well traveled, but n- never to Asia, uh, to India. And she, uh, she was overwhelmed and she was very upset because, you know, it's so different and the faces are different and it's a different kind of chaos. And she was just like, oh, you know, (laughs) but it's these people who come in to your life and help you that, that it makes you realize that, you know what, regardless of our skin color or our culture, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever, we're all people and our basic needs are all the same. Our wants are all the same. 
And I think when we see someone who's, who's in trouble and we need to learn more of that in North America, when we see someone who's in trouble, go to that person and say, Hey, are you okay? What can I do? Can I help you? And, and that is so ingrained in Muslim culture that, that, that they're, they're, they're seeking that out. I think go, I'm going to stop talking. (laughs) So where do I start? Yeah. So I I've been to some, some pretty far away places. I've been to China and I've been through Chinese checkpoints. I've been to Israel a couple times and in places where Western society, American news would say, don't go there. But back to your point, it had always been my experience that at the end of the day, people are just people. They're kind, they're generous, they're empathetic, they're curious. They just want to help. So there was a time when I was in the northern border, the, the northern regions of Israel along the border of Syria, and meaning I'm looking out my window and there's the wall separates Israel from Syria. And it it was... <sighs> It was no big deal. Like to me, it was a big deal because you you read the stories and you watch the news and like, holy crap. And the time I was there, the United States had launched this targeted airstrike into Syria because of what Bashar al-Assad was doing and not to get political, but like there was some tension. There was some heat there. And I remember just traveling along there and people were walking around like, hey, man, it's just Tuesday. And I would be riding my bike or walking down the street and then an armored up Humvee would come cruising by. And it was just as common to see men in battle fatigues with a machine gun over their shoulder as it was to see a guy walking to work with a briefcase. Like it was the same. And so I'm sitting here, this naive wide-eyed tourist taking pictures of this stuff because it looks insane to see people walking out with machine guns. Like when's the last time you saw a machine gun where you live? Probably never. Right. And I'm taking pictures and people are looking at me like, what are you taking pictures of, man? Like, this is just life. And it it was crazy. So I remember there was, there's a, a Facebook group called bikepacking Israel. And I had uh, put a profile on there and said, Hey, my name is Jerry. I'm from the U S I'm going to be traveling in Israel. I was wondering if anyone is around, wants to get together for a coffee. Because honestly, through all my travels, it wasn't about the mountain passes. It wasn't about the the topography or the places. It was it was about the connections, the people that you meet, the experiences. So I had learned this over a couple of years. So I put out this little post on this bikepacking Israel Facebook page. And I'm along the border, this time near Lebanon. And again, the border wall is right there. And it's not an open border because Lebanon and Israel aren't friends. And I pull into this this little coffee shop. And as I'm walking in, I've been traveling. I'm dirty. I'm sweaty. I'm filthy. I'm just basically like a, a dirt bag. And I walk in this coffee shop to get some water. And the guy behind the counter kind of cocks his head sideways and looks at me. And he says, matter of factly, are you Jerry? Like, what? So, I, of course, I didn't see that coming. I'm looking for the cameras. Like, what kind of ruse is this? And so, you know, I'll play along. Like, yeah, I'm Jerry. What's, uh, how do I know you? He's like, hey, I saw your post on bikepacking Israel. Do you need a place to sleep tonight? It's like, yeah, man, I really do. Because you can't camp in this region because it's all military. It's all border. It's, it's high security. You can't just pitch your tent along the border wall. It's, it's not safe and it's not allowed. So he said, no, I I have a better idea. Hand me your phone and I will drop a pin to 
to uh to my house and follow it and my neighbor will be outside and we'll meet you and i got to stay at this guy's house for i think probably two or three days and it's a guy who i'd never really met before until that moment and it was just this testimony that again people are just people so governments can be crazy but for the most part people are kind they're generous and they just want to be helpful and so i stayed in this guy's house and it's funny too how if you um i don't know how to to contextualize this but just sometimes how if you just let go you know things seem to fall into place in a lot of ways i don't know if that makes sense but it's like you didn't expect that you know like you were you were just like you know you're problem solving in your head trying to think of what you're going to do and um it's almost like (laughs) it sounds like super woo but but <laughs> but it's just super woo. You, you put out this vibration right and and people well, actually <clears throat> so jonathan was talking about this on the podcast we did yesterday last night and he was saying uh, explaining the idea of uh sympathetic resonance so you know we all vibrate right and and some people you just don't resonate with and some people you do i feel like like Jonathan said, you know, I think we're really vibing off each other. Yeah, and I feel like you and I are kind of vibing off each other a little bit. You know, this is easy, right? This conversation yeah. is easy. And it and it's like people, it, you go into a different culture, but every human being on the planet is vibrating, right? And it's that person that you come in into close proximity with that vibrates, you know, is on your same wavelength. <laughs> and they see you and they're almost attracted to you. And they're like, hey, do you do you need some help? Or, you know, you might not even look helpless or desperate but they're like hey you're not from here can i help you you know like that's pretty cool that that just kind of falls into place right yeah yeah and through my travels i've met countless people that yeah you just have this immediate connection with and it's happened since i've been back in the states back in breckenridge colorado where i live where i'll just and it's not everyone, right? I mean, you don't you don't jive with every person, but for sure, there are people you just meet and it's just like that immediate click with. And there was a time when I was coming through Nepal and I had been I'd been traveling at this point for probably, I don't know, two months. And I had found my way through through northern India where your sister I don't know where your sister is, but I was in the north. New Delhi. New Delhi. Yeah. So that place I go nowhere near, uh, cause it is crazy. It's intense. There's a lot of people there and you know, they want to help you, but of course they're trying to make money too. But I was in the North near the Pakistan border in another contentious region, but I had been traveling South through, through India and then cross into Nepal cycled the Annapurna circuit. And before that I was in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana and Madagascar. So I've been gone from the U S for about two months and that's a whole nother story how I found myself there. But we'll get there. two months by by Western standards is a long time to be away from home, a long time to not be working. And we can talk about how that came to be later. But I I'd gotten back into Kathmandu and I was getting ready to to fly back home to to Colorado. And I had the opportunity to meet this this couple. They were about my age, they're from Switzerland. And we started, like you said, we just kind of immediately connected one time in, in downtown Kathmandu. We decided to have dinner together. And they started sharing stories. Where have you been? What's the route you've been taking? I said, like, well, I've done this, this, and that. It's like, yeah, we've done all that too. And they said, well, what are you doing next week? 
Uh, interesting question. I don't know. Um, I've been gone two months. I'm probably going to head back to Colorado. And they said, well, we've been gone for two years. I said, holy crap, how is that possible? And, you know, they explained that they were teachers and they just kind of got fed up with their normal rat race routine. And they said, we're just going to go get on our bikes and we'll figure things out. And so they said, besides the fact that you've been gone for two months, we've been gone for two years. Why are you going home? I said, I don't, I don't understand your question. Are you married? Like, no, I'm not. I recently, you know, went through a separation. Do you have a job? Like, no, recently went through a separation. Like, well, do you have kids? I'm like, nope. Do you have a dog? Like, no. I said, well, why are you going home? Well, I, I don't know. What did you have in mind? We're going to keep riding through Nepal into Northeast India to Darjeeling, Sikkim, provinces like Assam, Nagaland, Arunachal Pradesh. Do you want to come with us? And I thought to myself, like, I don't know. Like, I've I've known you for an hour and a half. What's what's the worst that could happen, right? We're all three on bikes. If we don't continue to get along, if we if you don't find me funny, you don't enjoy my jokes. Uh, uh, we annoy the shit out of each other. Like, yeah, we'll just we'll just peel off and go our separate ways. Because up until this point, I was traveling with this mindset to always say yes. And with that, I because it's so easy, right, to say no to everything. It gives you this sense of control. I can just say no and just be in my own world. But when you say yes, it opens yourself up to to vulnerability, but also to experiences. And so up to this point, I've been traveling and meeting people. And when I was in Zambia, I met someone who said, go to Zimbabwe. So I thought, okay, I'll go to Zimbabwe. And from Zimbabwe, I met someone who said, go to Madagascar. And so I found my way in Madagascar. When I was at the airport from Madagascar, about to fly back to the U.S., I met a woman from India. And she's like, you should go to India. And so I, that's just how this progression started to go. And I thought to myself, if I really believe the words that I've been spewing here about always say yes, then the right answer is to go with these this Swiss couple who I've known for an hour and a half and and go see what shakes out. And we were together pretty much 24-7 for the next three months. And they're still some of my closest friends. So long story long, you never know who you're going to meet, right? And that's that's one of the big takeaways from travel is that or just living with an open heart in general, that you you can meet amazing people if you open yourself up to it. And I think too on that, like especially in, in the context of of touring and riding bikes, it's like it's pretty likely you're going to gel with those people as well. Yeah. So it's kind of a saying yes to that kind of thing is, is an easy answer. It was funny. It's like <clears throat> I want to push back a little bit because I've, you know, through my handful of years of personal growth um, and then recently working with, with a great coach, um, she was saying that um, it's it's great to say yes to things, and this isn't in your context. It's just a little bit of a contrast to what you're saying. But it's like if you don't feel it in your gut, if someone asks you, "Hey, do you want to do this job, take on this contract, or <laughs> go travel here, or travel there, or do something?" Your subconscious knows, and I think if you're paying attention, like I, I was approached quite recently just to do like a side gig, um, some digital marketing for someone. But it's not really for a thing that I really resonate with. And sure. so I'm laying there in bed one night thinking about it. And then it's just like, nope, no, nope, it's not lighting me up. I'm not going to do it. Right. And it just kind of. I agree with that. Yeah. So I just, I'm not pushing back, but, um, no, no. but I, I hear what you're saying. And it's like, it's so true. It's, it's especially, it's funny. 
they, they, they kind of put you in your place. It's like, well, why are you going home? And you probably never even <laughs> thought of it. You were just like, well, because that's why I got to go home. And then I you didn't. never even thought of it, right? Well, and I, and I had this, this route planned a little bit. So I've done some research that I saw that there was this route from the northern part of India down to the middle part. So it was called the Leh Manali Highway. And so it wasn't that well-traveled at the time. This would have been 2016. But since then, it's it definitely has shown up on a lot more blog posts. And so it's it's been a lot more established. So I had planned to just do the Leh to Manali route and then cycle my way into Nepal, ride the Annapurna circuits. And again, that'd be two months of being away, sort of a reset in my life at the time and head home and get back to to what society says is the norm and go back and find that job and and go meet the new girl and and it just it didn't play out that way but i i, I do agree that i don't think you should just uh absentmindedly just go with everything i think your your intuition your gut is very power is very powerful but i also have this insatiable curiosity i mean you're a cyclist like what's over that next hill what's around the next corner and I didn't know anything about Northeast India or Eastern Nepal. I didn't even, I didn't even, honestly, this is embarrassing. I didn't even realize that India kind of wrapped around and hugged Nepal and came around on the other side. So I just thought that India was this big thing from the north of Pakistan down to New Delhi. And that was pretty much it. So that shows my, at the time, my very geographical ignorance. Yeah, but that's okay, right? That's, I mean, there's, <laughs> it is. You can't know everything. You can't, you just can't, right? Um, okay, we got deep fast into stories, which is great, but I want to go back a little bit and start working towards um, this part of your life. So you grew up in Michigan? Yeah, man. Tell me about growing up. Uh, just, a, just a little small farm community south of Lansing, Michigan. So Lansing is the capital, and this is a little small town, about 5,000 people. It's called Eaton Rapids. Probably had... A, 800 kids in my, in my school, 170 or so in my graduating class. So, you know, if you, if you look and do a Google search for middle America, this town is probably the poster child. It's just, it's a very average common town. So grew up there. My dad was a Korean war veteran. So super strict guy, definitely drew the line in the sand from, from the day that I could walk. So this is one of those things like this is my house and it's my rules. And if you are living under my roof, like this is how it works. And if you want something different when you're 18, you can go live your own way. But I don't mean that to say that he was in any way, not a great dad. He was, he was just very strict, right? So for anyone who has seen the movie, cool hand Luke with Paul Newman, I don't know if you grew up watching movies, but this was one of our favorites and in there, Cool Hand Luke is Paul Newman, and he's this kind of guy who is always sort of pushing the limits. So like, yeah, this is the line, but why? Why is that the line? And let's see how far I can push things. And that was kind of my thing with my dad. And as a, as a military guy, you don't question authority. So we always had some pretty inherent and you know, sometimes some, some pretty big disconnects because he was always drawing the line and I was always sort of scrubbing it away or erasing it or at least questioning why that was and one of the the famous lines from the movie cool hand luke ends up going to jail for some stuff and he has this this battle with the with the prison warden and every time luke would do something there would always be consequence right and the famous line was the, from the warden was 
what we have here is failure to communicate. And so my dad would always say that to me because I don't know. I mean, nobody likes to be questioned and, and certainly not when you're in a position of authority. So kind of a long story long there, but that's, that's a bit of the background with, uh, with my dad and growing up in Michigan. And from there, uh, my parents got divorced. I went and lived in Colorado after high school. I went to university, Colorado and Boulder. And from there, just started following this laminated, almost roadmap to success that society tells us. So you, you go to college, you get the job, you meet the girl, you buy the house and all this, all of your success is right there in front of you. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't, doesn't work out that way for a lot of people it doesn't work out that way. And I was definitely one of those people. So no, no, um, your great dad, no trauma growing up, just kind of no, a normal strict. No. Yeah. <clears throat> My dad no, was I grew up in a divorced household, but both right. parents loved me. And so I, I definitely grew up with, <laughs> with a good head start in life. You know, neither of my parents were abusive. Neither of them were addicts. They were always present. They always made sure that I went to school to support my athletic career. So you know, we weren't rich. We were just very average, but for most kids or for many kids in the world, they, they don't have that. So I definitely had that head start. They had two loving parents. Yeah. I would, I resonate with that as well. My parents are still together and uh, my dad was a, wow. pol a police officer in Ontario, a Ontario provincial police officer for a while. And then he went into security consulting and stuff. But he was he was pretty, I would say they were, I don't know, my sister might argue. Um, it depends on your, on your um, uh, nature, right? How, but yeah, I guess my parents were a little strict. Um, I grew up, you know, with a fairly, I think a fairly good moral compass, you know, so I can kind of resonate with that. I remember my dad saying, looking at my, I think my grades were kind of not, not too great. And, and he had threatened to uh, send me to military college. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before too. And you know what? Um, that might've been good. That actually might've been really good for me in terms of where I am now. It might've given me a, a, even a better launching pad to, 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 uh, cause, cause right now I'm like 50 and now I'm recently, you know, separated with two kids mm -hmm. and I'm living in an apartment and it's just like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing now. I have no idea <laughs> where, what, what the future holds. But what I know is that similar to you, it's like now is a time that I can start forging a path through life that I want, whether it be career, um, relationships, uh, relationships with my children, you know, I can start really focusing on those things now. Right. And I think it's important. And, and yeah, I, I, I had that laminated card, right? You know, super serial monogamist, you know, like, oh, we're going to yeah. get, get together and, and uh, you know, uh, buy a house. This is, you know, I'm, actually our house is sold now. That's my fourth house in my life that I've sold. Wow. And, and uh, yeah, two kids, beautiful kids. Um, but now, you know, my, my new partner is, is like, we've both talked about it and even our kids have asked us individually. It's like, so are you guys going to get married? And we're both like, no, no, we're not getting married. You know, we're going to, and, 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 and the way my partner puts it is like, we're going to be together as long as we're blessed to be together. That's what, that's what we're going to do. So okay. we're both in it, but yeah, there's going to be no marriage, man. And, and no more kids. Now I've got four kids. <laughs> so she has two and, and has two. you have two? Okay. Yeah, so it's like it's all children like all the time, which is which is kind of cool. She she has a younger and older than my my two. My two are kind of in the middle. 
Okay. But, but yeah, same thing. It's, it's like you fall into these patterns of life that you think you should do things a certain way. And of course, when I talk to people like you, I'm like, man, you know, I, I, I love my kids, but life would have been a lot more easy and free um, yeah. without that. But having a family, knowing that you're, I'll, I'll never be alone again. I always have them to love me and I'll always have their love and I always have someone to love. Yeah, it's comforting. a pretty comforting thing as well, despite the situation. You know, I know I'm going to I'm going to see them tomorrow for a few days and and uh, I can't wait. It, and it's it's I can't wait to see them. But then inevitably there's a roller coaster of chaos and craziness. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, then, uh, how old are your kids? Seven and nine. <clears throat> OK, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I got started pretty late. I think we um, had my my boy when I think I was 42. Yeah. So got started pretty late. But um, eh, whatever. That's life, right? It's you know can't can't live in the past. Can't live with re- with regrets. All you can do is, as my buddy Alan says, just he's from Texas. He's like, Steve, just love your kids. Just hug your kids. That's all you can do, right? Just hug your kids. So, I remember. Well, in it, I mean, inevitably, life happens to everyone, right? Something doesn't go your way. Somehow, life throws you this crazy sucker punch. It hits you in the kidneys or something like that. And it's like, holy shit didn't see that coming. And it's just a continual reminder that we can't control what happens to us. We can only control how we show up and how we respond. And there is, so I'm kind of a big fan of, of, I don't know, inspirational quotes, but also like famous quotes too. And so I, I came across this quote a while ago and it simply goes frame every so-called disaster with in five days or five months or five years, will this matter? And there are some things that absolutely will have consequence that will matter five years from now. But the grand scheme majority of them is that they won't. And so it's easy to be what I would call in it and be kind of spinning in your own head because you're in this in this shit storm of life. But if you can somehow take a breath, step back and realize, you know what, that guy cut me off and I'm driving in this car or I lost the job that I have been working so hard to to keep or to get. Yeah, the, it all sucks, but something good is going to come out of this. You're going to make it through this tunnel. And in five months or five weeks or whatever, whatever the number is, like, it's not going to matter. And so do you ever, uh, I mean, you and I are pretty much the same age. I turned 49 recently, which it's, uh, it's, it's, the second time I've said that out loud. So it's, it's, it's still <laughs> shocking to me. So I, I'm not a 50 yet, but it's like, Oh crap, my forties. So I'm 49 now. But so you and I are the same age, same generation. Did you ever watch any old Mike Tyson fights or just get into Mike Tyson when you were a kid? Not, not really. My, my dad was a huge uh, boxing fan, but uh, no, I didn't really get into Mike Tyson. So What's, I know you're going to, re- the quote you're going to throw out is what, um, everything's fine until you get punched in the face or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm not saying Mike Tyson is this literary genius or this inspirational savant because, you know, he's probably not. I've never met the guy, but nothing that I've ever heard or seen of him would, would indicate that he is to me. But the point is, is that they were interviewing his competitor before a fight and the guy was like, yeah, I'm going to soften him up with my jab and I'm going to start working the body and the stuff. And then it's like, Mike, what do you think about this? He's like, yeah, well, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. 
And so I think that's just so poignant and so brilliant because, you know, we all have this plan. We all have this laminated roadmap to success that we think is going to get us to where we want to be by the time we're 35 or 40. And then you realize like, wham, you get punched in the mouth and like, ah, okay, that plan just got pitched out the window. Now, how am I going to sort of pick myself off the mat and get scrappy and figure this thing out? And so it's just, it's a quote that I've just been sticking to and using a lot over probably the last decade. Cause you know, like, like a lot of people I've gotten punched in the mouth too. Yeah, it's lots. It's, it's like, um, and I've said this in, in the last couple podcasts, but my, um, coach Ryan was saying, um, I can't remember the movie he was referring to, but he, he was saying that, you know, joy is not a steady state, right? It's, it's, it's just like bike packing. I equate uh, bike packing or long trips. It's, it's basically life distilled into, I mean, you've gone away for months, but for me, it's like, you know, a three day event or a five day event or the, say the divide. It's like, Riding yeah. the divide is life. It's like there's ups and downs, except they're, it's not like week to week. It's like hour to hour, right? It's like you're sure. pushing your bike through the snow up over Coco Claims or Galton Pass, and you're in the mud and the snow, and it fucking sucks. And then <laughs> you, you just have to stop for a minute and just like laugh. Because it's like you said in a couple of your pieces, it's like, I chose this. I'm here, and I chose this. So, uh, you know, it, it, it sucks right now. But if I look at my GPS and I look at my elevation profile, there's only maybe two more hours of pushing my wheelbarrow up the hill. And then I get to the <laughs> other side and then you know that as soon as you start descending and you're getting closer to that resupply, that everything just turns around. And then, and then to throw in another analogy with that is I knew when I was in New Mexico, it got really dark for me. And I started really thinking about what life was going to be like when I came back because it's, it, there is a bit of a... Uh, not PTSD, I've used, the, I don't know if that's the right term, but there's a bit of coming back to reality can be really tough, right? And you can probably tell stories about that being away for so mm. long. But I knew that when I came back from the divide, that there was, there was a fork. When I got back, there was this fork and it was all relate, related to my relationship and, and, and the family. And it's like, it's either gonna be better or it's gonna take a turn and it's gonna fall mm -hmm. apart. And I didn't know. And then when I got to, when I got to the island, eventually my family had gone to the island and when my ex picked me up at the, at the airport and I could feel it in the hug she gave me and I said, ah, uh, it's done. I could feel that it's done. Cause it wasn't like, Oh, I'm really happy to see you. I'm really happy you're here. Congratulations on your ride. Da, 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 da. It was, there was none of that. There was no questions about my adventure. There was no interest mm. in what I had just accomplished or what I had just endured, if you will. And it was just, I just knew it was over and I didn't expect that, but, but I think that whole trip, um, <clears throat> it attenuated so much emotion over the course. It simplified things so much, you know, that all the little stresses and there was quite a bit of stress on that trip. Like my credit card got canceled and, you know, <laughs> basically I don't want to say this just as quick tangent. I want to thank everyone in the, my back 40 community for helping me ride the divide because it's, I have to thank them. It's you guys, because when I, yeah. po when I posted, I'm fucked, I'm in Montana. I think I have to go home. My credit card's canceled. Then it was just support tons and tons and tons of support. So it was not an unsupported effort. It was my back 40 that supported me through it. So anyway, I just want to say that and thank you. I'm getting emotional, <laughs> but, but it's, it's like when you do these trips, it attenuates all this bullshit monkey mind crap that's going around in your head. And then everything's so simple, food, water, shelter, 
survival, you know, stuff like that. Where am I going to hide from the rain? Where am I going to sleep tonight? Where am I going to, whatever, where am I going to eat? I'm running out of food, blah, blah, blah. And then when you, when you, when you dumb, when you, when you dull all the other senses down, it's the, it's the really important things that bubble up, right? Like relationships and like, um, um, past behavior, you know, like you look back and I felt so much regret about how I reacted or responded to this event or that event or this decision I made or this word I said, or, you know, you, you, it's just such a great method of process, right? Just to go through and process. I mean, from a men's mental health standpoint, it's, it's like, I think these adventures, these doing hard things is so important for us as men and women. I'm not huh. going to speak for women cause I'm, I'm a man. I'm sure it's just as important doing hard things for them. But like from a man's point of view, it's like you have to go out and bust your ass doing something, whatever that may be. If it's, you want to put your energy in career, bust your ass and do it. If you want to, you know, if you have an okay career and you want to bust your ass, you know, out on the trail or running or hiking or whatever it is, you need that. You need, we need to bring our brains back to primal so that we can really process things. Yeah. And you, you talk about some of the the dark times on, on a bike packing trip. So there's been times when I've been in Nepal where I'm trying to lug this 70 pound fully loaded rig over a 17 or 18,000 foot mountain pass. And it's, it's, it's a hiking path. It's not, it's not a road. So I can't pedal. So you're pushing your bike for carrying your bike for six straight hours and the weather is terrible. And you're like, God, how do I get out of this? But then I've started to have this realization because I used to run a hospice and I, through hospice, I learned. Yeah. And so, so through the hospice, I learned really about the value of time and how finite it is. And it's always given me this perspective that no matter how terrible a situation is, one, it'll pass. And two, you'll miss it when it's gone. So I, you know, I get back to, to Colorado to my desk, to my office, to, to work. And I think, God, remember that time when I was dragging my bike over this mountain pass in the Himalayas? Like that was the time I like, this was terrible, but yeah, you do miss it when it's gone. And and to your point, I think there's, there's something therapeutic, almost cathartic to going to the well, to see how deep you can go into that pain cave to see how resilient you are because we all get knocked down at some point in our life, but it's how do you respond to it? How do you get back up? Whether it's a breakup with a partner, whether it's loss of a job, whether it's you know a, a terrible six thousand uh, six thousand foot climb over a mountain pass, like how resilient are you? How deep can you go and still come back? And so there's there's something really I don't know what the word is, just something empowering maybe to let you know, like, yeah, I'm, I can do this. I'm, I'm resilient. Yeah. I think there's something, um, going way back with, um, a therapist I've worked with Matt Bain. He's a, he's a sports psychologist, but he was like that intrinsic need to feel masterful and to feel capable and to feel, um, um, like what you just said, like, just feel uh, capable to face adversity. Right. And, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, Western life, you know, I always use the thing. It's like a oh, first world world problem. Oh, my, my internet's yeah. down. Uh, you know, like it could go down right now in the middle of this yeah, conversation. Sure. Right. Or the power could go off or whatever. 
but those are kind of first world problems. Like these countries you go to, they have power maybe a couple hours a day. Some of these villages like, hey, we have power. Yay. For a few hours, they turn the lights on. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's all perspective and context. But, but it's like you had to face adversity um, and be outside your box and, and know that, okay, you know, this was crazy. This was a crazy day. And I just hiked over this pass. And I'm sitting at a restaurant eating a hot meal. It's like, I did it. It's like I conquered. It's like a little, <laughs> a little piece of, of, of conquer in that day. You conquered something that day. So I want to go back. And <clears throat> so what did you go to school for? Did, did your education lead you into hospice? Or what did you do there in early life? Uh, you're just flipping it on me, man. Yeah. yeah like so let's, let's, let's go way back. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I went to school. I went to business school. And I had this idea that I wanted to go into banking. So I got the job that I wanted. I figured what's, what's the highest bank in the country. And it's the federal reserve. They set monetary policy, interest rates. They essentially control the way the country runs. And so I was fortunate enough to get a job at the federal reserve bank in Denver. And since you and I are of similar age, as I mentioned, do you remember back with the uh, the perceived Y2K crisis? Yeah, I was an IT guy. Right. I remember standing yeah. behind a hotel desk looking at my watch just, going, oh, fuck, here it comes. <laughs> Nothing just happens. Just waiting for, the, for you know, midnight to come and the world to blow up and buildings to crumble and everyone's bank accounts to get reset to zero. And so, so my job as a financial analyst for the Federal Reserve was to forecast how much money we needed to have on hand so that if all the people got freaked out before before doomsday and decided to take all their money out, that the entire banking institutions in the country wouldn't collapse. So my number my my job was just essentially crunch numbers. Okay, there's this amount of money in circulation, there's this many people, there's this much in deposits. If everyone takes this out, we have to be able to cover this because if you know much about about banking, like just because you have money in the bank and it may show a thousand dollars in a savings account, that money's not there. Right? No, because it's, it's, it's been it, the banks use it to make money, right? Of course, they lend it out. They they loan to people to buy houses, to buy cars. So if everyone says, "Hey, I want my money back," well, the banks can't pay that. So my job was to to forecast for all this. I don't know. That may sound interesting, but it really wasn't that interesting. So I remember what should have been like the craziest New Year's Eve ever. 1999, think of Prince, right? And I had to be in the office at 6 a.m. on New Year's Day. And so just to see that nothing happened, right? The world is still going. So you can thank your IT professionals for that because I just remember <laughs> running around doing update, updating servers, updating workstations, right. update, update, update. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, and like there was, it was a genuine concern. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then, you know, it goes click midnight. I'm like looking around. Like, you're waiting Are for the power here? grid to go just brownouts <laughs> and fires and <laughs> right no no zombie apocalypse like <laughs> no. it was it was fine right the world is is fine and then so a year into this job I'm coming up on my annual review and with with most jobs you sit down with your boss and you want to talk about what you've accomplished for the year and what you want to do going forward and i remember just coming from a very structured environment with my dad, very militaristic. The Federal Reserve Bank is just one step removed from the military. So, you know, you can come in early or you can stay late, but you will definitely be here from eight to five every day because it's banking hours. I'm like, all right, well, 
And with that uh, promise of hard work, you can have 10 holidays, 10 vacation days per year. I was like, oh my goodness. It's shitty. So anyways, it's so shitty. It's I, pretty tough to stay yeah. motivated, but it, for a lot of people who are lifers with the Fed, they didn't mind. That was just their thing. But for me, I was, I think with my dad being so strict, it kind of instilled this, this counter reaction to me wanting to just shirk off any sense of structure or, or, or just me wanting to have more autonomy in life. So I remember sitting, going into this review with my boss thinking, okay, what am I going to tell him that I want to work on this year, knowing that I absolutely hate this job and I don't want to be it anymore. And so it's like, Hey, so how do you feel about your year? And what do you feel like you want to work on going forward? And I have this, this whole song and dance pitched up. That's going to make me sound like I really want this job. And he's like, let me just stop you right there. We don't think this is the right place for you to be. And so it's like, Oh, like you're breaking up with me. Like I was trying to break up with you. And so I was like, yeah, we'll give you a couple of weeks to transition some of your projects, but we just don't think this is the right place for you. And so that's how that first job ended. And from there, I found my way into different telecom jobs that I thought would make a difference. I thought that would excite me and open up some of my passions and, and unlock some, some enthusiasm. And it turns out that working 50, 60 hour weeks in a soulless corporation didn't really do much for me. And it wasn't until I had the opportunity to start a hospice with my mom at the ripe old senior age of 31, that purpose kind of found its way into my life. And it's just working with people at the end of life, like, man, you learn some incredible lessons, but it wasn't, it wasn't an idea that I had. So my, the way it all came about is my mom was on vacation down in Mexico with her, her husband. And she calls me up and I'm living in, we're both living in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And she says, Hey Jerry, I know what I want to do. And I'm trying to, I, I can't adequately emulate or replicate my mom's enthusiasm because she's just this really wildly passionate and optimistic human. And she says, I, I know what I want to do. Cause at the time she knew that my job wasn't really inspiring, I'm sorry, inspiring passion in my life, nor was hers. And she says, I want to start a hospice. And I'm kind of this sarcastic, snarky and naive 31 year old kid. I don't know what a hospice is. So I think to myself, like hospice, I, I don't really want to run a hotel of sorts for transient student backpackers coming through Boulder oh. <laughs> says, wait, what? No, 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 no. That's a hostel. I'm talking about a hospice. Like, What's a hospice. And then she tells me, right. And, you know, again, at 31, what do I know about death and dying and caring for people at the end of life? Nothing. But she came back, my business brain and her creativity came together. And about three or four months later, we launched this organization called Family Hospice in Boulder, which we ran for 10 years. And man, the, the lessons you learn and the perspectives you get when you get out of your own myopic world, mm. it's, it's powerful. And, and in what capacity were you working there? Like, were you so, back end business guy, or were you in in the in the I trenches? Was, helping I was people? everything everything non clinical. So I'm I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a chaplain. I'm not a spiritual coordinator. I'm just a guy who does everything else. So it could be paying the electric bill. It could be 
running payroll, doing the accounting, doing the finances, doing the taxes, meeting with CEOs of hospitals, meeting with administrators of nursing homes and forming relationships and agreements with them. So it was anything that wasn't direct patient care was it, it fell onto my desk and it still had opportunities on a more volunteer, less clinical basis to spend time with, with patients. And I remember for anyone who's from Colorado and knows Boulder, there's this little old mining town called Ward. It's up above, it's up above Boulder. And one of our first patients, her name was Francis. She was probably 95 years old and she had end stage lung cancer. And with her oxygen tank, she probably weighed 95 pounds. But I remember she lived in this old homestead that her father had built that she was born in and raised in. And we found out that she had a wood burning stove. And so several times a week during the winter, she would go out and she would chop wood with either an ax or a hatchet to put wood into her stove so she could have heat. And I remember that my stepdad and I found out about this. So we took his truck, plowed through the snow to get to her driveway, which was fully snowed in and split a bunch of wood for her. And it was after that, I got to spend time with Frances and just hear all of her stories. And again, going back to, to connections and this concept I like to call the human experience, just hearing all about her life and what Boulder was like in the 30s. And it was just, it was fascinating. And from that point on, I, I was hooked. I, I was just, I was craving this level of interaction. So all of the the, the back end stuff that I was doing with the business operations, it was just a means for us to be able to offer this incredible service, this incredible experience for our for our patients and their patients' families. And it's one of those things that just changed my life almost overnight. So you, so you did that for a decade. Did you find that hard to... Um, I would think that if I were in that environment, being a pretty empathetic person, an emotional sponge, that I would, I would have a hard time leaving some of that behind. Like... Sure, there's the one side yeah. where you're hearing all these great stories and people's wisdom, and and especially from people who have who have already um, processed their mortality and are ready to say to move on. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure you've encountered people who are in a place of a very dark place who are who are afraid of the future, and I, I would imagine. I mean, I've never spent any time right. in a hospice, but was it difficult to take uh, to leave that stuff behind every day? It was. We. We talked about boundaries and setting boundaries with patients because inevitably the majority of our patients were terminal. There were people who we would term graduated who with a lot of care and attention and the proper medical guidance actually did get better and we discharged them from our care. So they graduated, but those were the outliers. But for the most part, people, people did pass away. They died and it was hard. And so we, we talked to our staff about the importance of setting boundaries so that when these people did pass, it didn't absolutely devastate you because again, you have all these encounters every single day, five days a week, sometimes seven days a week. And it was hard sometimes, but I was able to find beauty in the relationship and the stories and knowing that I was having an opportunity to make an impact on someone's life, a positive impact. So there would be times when certain patients wouldn't have family, they wouldn't have relatives or friends, and they were all alone. And that and that was the worst, right? To to be alone. 
And I remember sometimes being in a hospital with somebody just holding their hand at two o'clock in the morning and maybe putting a cool washcloth across their forehead, just letting them know that in this very precious time, they're not alone. And it was, it was hard for me, but I was able to spin it mentally. Like, look, the gift that I'm, am able to give to this person. And at the end of the day, most of our patients were probably, I don't know, on average 90 to 95 years old. And I could somehow in a little way, make sense of the fact that, okay, you're going through this terrible time. I hope that after 90 or 95 years, you had a good life. You had a full life. You, you loved, you were loved and you had great experiences and laughter, but it wasn't until I had a friend who at 45 died of breast cancer that absolutely rocked me. I mean, she was this amazing, beautiful spirit. She did all the things that she was supposed to do. She was a vegetarian. She was an athlete. She didn't drink. She didn't do all these things. And she died. And so it was at that point, this, this little light switch came on in my head that I needed to start paying more attention to how I was living my own life. Because in Western, in Western mentality, we have this, this approach that if we are following again, this laminated roadmap to success, we're going to do all these things. We're going to work our butts off until we're 60 or 65 years old. And then we're going to start living our best life. And honestly, that's all I ever knew. But until I lost my friend, it didn't occur to me that tomorrow's not promised. And if you're not happy with what you're doing right now, you need to make a change because you may not get the opportunity. And so with hospice, with the unfortunate loss of a close friend, my entire world got a new perspective, a new spin. I'm going to read something. Choose relationships and experiences over stuff. Because at the end of the day, when things don't go your way, everything, everyone needs a friend who will call you up and say, get dressed, fucker. We're going on an adventure. I pulled that out of your, <laughs> your writing today. Nice pull, man. Nice pull. Yeah. So I, so that was from, that's in a piece that you were writing about your friend who had cancer, I believe, when I pulled yeah. that out. But it's like, yeah. it is backwards. It's super backwards, right? It's, and, and like you're saying, it's like, how, how can you live your best life? Well, I mean, it depends on what you what you see your best life as being. I mean, a lot of people look at retirement and say, I'm going to sit on a beach and um, I'm going to not do, I'm going to drink margaritas and watch the waves roll in. And it's like, yeah, of course, you know, my, my dad retired and he's the type of, I mean, this was a while ago, decade ago, but uh, he's the type of guy who just can't stop. Right. And, and he still works. Mostly it's volunteer for like men's sheds and um, uh, senior activity committees for the town he lives in. So he's, and he's won like numerous awards by the, from the Canadian government for the work he's doing to help seniors. And I think it's like that for him is uh, working and giving back. That's what his life turned into, right? His, it's like it, it, it went from working his ass off to support us and support his family. Lots of roller coaster through that. And then coming out the other side and saying, okay, you know what? Now I want to give back to my community. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like, it, it's, it's like that, that expectation that we're just going to sit on the beach, uh, that, and, and, and retire and bring in our, what in Canada it's called a registered income retirement fund or whatever, you know, put your, your <laughs> retirement away and then you start getting paid back by it. I mean, 
I've come to the realization that for me, I'm probably going to be always working at something, yeah. at something, yeah, whatever sure. it may be. Maybe it's this. Maybe I'll be 75 years old and I'm going to still be having these conversations, which would be great because this is super fulfilling and meaningful for me. But at, at some level, I'm going to be working constantly, doing something. Um, and, and it's like, I, th I think the, the human condition is, I think, to live a happy life, we have to be doing stuff that's meaningful, whether we're getting paid or not. We have to keep doing meaningful things for, for others, but also for ourselves, right? To, to fill our own buckets up. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I can't imagine not doing something that doesn't involve human connection and, and, and brain mental stimulation. So my dad's going to turn 90 on August 1st this year, and he is sharp as a tack. He somehow has a full head of wavy brown gray hair. And what I happened? definitely got what happened yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the mother's side, right? Yeah, so I no. blame my mom. I thank my four, mom. <laughs> <laughs> I've got four brothers and we're all are kind of going to the same barber at some point. So, but thankfully I, I went to my last uh, barber, which, which meant uh, buying a clipper, a head shaver clipper for 30 bucks. And that was 20 years ago. And so I've had 20 bucks for 20 years of, uh, of, of haircuts. So that's, yeah, I've, I've tucked that money away into a little nest egg and, and it, go, it goes to my travel fund, I guess, because I'm not dropping 50 bucks a month on haircuts. But the same thing is my, my dad, he's this, he's like this larger than life character and he's still super active. And he, he tells me, I mean, he's been retired from real estate. He's, he's been in sales his whole life. And he can, he can sell, what, what was the quote from like uh, the movie Tommy Boy? He could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. Like, I don't know. He, he's <laughs> just, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's no such thing as a ketchup popsicle, but it's just, that's, that's how outlandish. Like my dad can sell anything. And so he still loves to work. And so he's got these contracts where he does snow removal. He shovels sidewalks, he shovels driveways. And in the summer he goes and mows lawns. So it's kind of like this full circle because that's what I did when I was in high school and growing up was shoveling sidewalks, shoveling driveways, mowing lawns. That's how I made my money. And now here he is doing that. And it's just cool because it gives him so much excitement and passion and mostly purpose because his wife of 35 years passed away about, about two years ago. And so I can't imagine what it's like after 35 years to wake up and not have someone there. So he gets up and he shovels the driveways and he mows the lawns. That's his purpose. And it gives him this really good sense of, of value and purpose. And he's got a great community of people around him. And so there's this, there's this Ted talk called the, the Harvard study. I don't know if you've seen that. Sure I've seen it that. talks, it talks about relationships and the premise was, is uh, probably 70, 75 years ago. I forgot how long ago it was, it was right around world war two or right, right after world war two when the United States was coming into prosperity and everything was in growth mode and the bunch of scholars or professors at the university at Harvard university came up with this they came up with this study. We're going to follow, I think 20 or 30 people for the next 50 years of their life and follow them through ups and downs, successes, failures, marriages, divorces, jobs, promotions. And we're going to keep asking them every year, how are you doing? Are you happy? Are you fulfilled? And the, the takeaway is that at the end of the day, whether they became rich and famous, a couple of them, I think, actually became president of the United States, 
some of them washed out and they became alcoholics, whatever. But the, the fundamental thread is that what makes people happy at the end of the day is its relationships, its purpose, it's having that community. Because at the end of the day, loneliness is toxic. And I, I love that story because I believe it. So whether it's my community in Colorado, the friends that I've made, or just the people that I've connected with, even briefly on travels, who maybe were part of my life only for a fleeting moment, or those who have been friends for the last five or six years and will be friends forever. Like it's those connections. It's that human experience that really is what makes life valuable. I think. Yeah, I would agree with you. And it's funny how it like if, if I knew then what I know now, you know, that phrase. Sure. And it's, it's just, you know, I, I think about, you know, stuff, stuff in the past, my parents would say like, They'd say something. Oh, you just wait. You just wait until you get older. Blah blah blah, or something like that. And the kids like, ah, get out of here. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's like if if there's anyone under like in their twenties, I, I doubt anyone in their twenties listens to this. And if you do, reach out. I, I feel like I feel like my my demographic is 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 kind of older than that. But you you kids, man, listen to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're not just shitting on your fun. They're actually really trying to set you up for success when they tell you these things. And it's like, yeah, you know, we, when we're young, we think we're invincible and, and, uh, now getting older and, and I don't, I don't really think about, about my mortality that much, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I just hope it's quick. I just hope it's, I want to have really good. What's, what's the, the, um, uh, lifespan versus health span. It's like, I want to have a long health span. I want to kind of be healthy and active and sharp and, and, and then boop, dead kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Rather than, you know, drugs and hospitals and surgeries and just decline. I want to have really good health span. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I say, I don't, I don't think about my mortality probably enough, but I find that every, every year, like now that I joke, like I'm over half dead now. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's like if I live to a hundred, which is really unlikely because a lot of people don't, and I'm not saying that mm-hmm. to be negative, but you know, your, your dad is a great example of, yeah, of sure. longevity, especially if he's out there doing stuff like that. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I'm over half dead and it's like every day spent, um, and I, and this is something that I'm, I'm struggling with, not struggling with, but I'm, I'm learning through personal growth is every day that I wake up and I'm ruminating on something or, or just wasting mental bandwidth, worrying about this or that, or who they, who said what, and what do people think of me and blah, blah, blah. It's like, fuck all of that. It's like, <laughs> all I can, all I can do is wake up, like to wake up and know that, oh, I'm going to be talking to Jerry today. Awesome. You know, this is great. And, you know, going into a podcast, usually I'm a little bit nervous. I probably haven't done enough groundwork and, you know, but I just like conversational flow and, and, and it's like, it's so meaningful. It's like, I need to get up every day and, and have something like this to look forward to, you know, some, someone to talk to or a bike ride to go on or, yeah. you know, when I go, when I go into work at my day job, I've been carrying a lot of anxiety about that because I'm trying to shape my career in, in the way I want it to. You know, like this eight to five bullshit, you know, I, I just, I, I can do a great job and it doesn't matter where I am. I could be here. I could be in Canmore. I could be a digital nomad. I could be down in Mexico and I could do this job. Right. And okay. I really want to shape it that way. Um, 
get resistance, getting a bit of resistance from the old school attitude of like, no, you're in the office nine to five, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so it's just like, yeah. I carry anxiety about that. But now it's like, it's like, am I going to give certain people, like people who are thinking or judging me or whatever, am I going to give them the power to make me feel this way? to make me feel like I'm not enough or I'm not worthy or I'm this or that or the other thing. It's like, no man, what a, what a waste. And not saying I'm perfect at that, but it's like, yeah, every, like another, what's the other quote? Each day you're given 86,400 seconds from the time bank. Everyone is given the same. There are no expect, there are no exceptions. The time bank won't tell you how to spend it. Time poorly spent will not be replaced with more time. Time doesn't do refunds. Time is your biggest gift. It is more valuable than money. You can always make money, but you cannot make more time. Your time is limited. One day you will go to the time bank and you won't have any more time. And it will be that moment that you know the answer to this question. Did I use my time well? And it's like you're you're an epitome of that, right? You're 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 you seem to be living this life that it's like like every moment is precious. So at what point in the, in, the, in the 10 years did you start thinking, man, um, I've learned so much at this hospice. I need to take this to the next, I need to start the next chapter of my life. When did that kind of start happening? Uh, so it kind of happens. Honestly, I loved what I was doing. I felt purpose, value, fulfillment every day in, in the work that I was doing. In fact, we had this motto around the office that simply stated every day is an opportunity to improve someone's life. And there's not many jobs, careers, et cetera, that you can make that statement for. But in 2015, my mom was turning 70 and she wanted to retire. And we had been together for 10 years and it was just time to make a different change, a pivot in life. And so I was fresh off of that happening fresh off of a breakup with uh, the person I thought I was going to grow old with. And then fresh off of my friend Cynthia's passing from cancer. And it was just kind of like this one, two, three punch that came out of nowhere that all happened within probably two or three months. And it just kind of knocked me sideways. But again, everyone, everyone has life happen to them. I'm not, I'm not unique in that regard. Everyone has this that they go through, but it's, it's, how do you, how do you bounce back? How do you find your resilience? So I thought, well, I haven't ever in my professional career, not worked in an office 30, 40, 60 hours a week. So I'm going to hop on this bike and head to Africa to visit a friend who's working for the center for disease controls down in Zambia. And had just planned on being gone down there, visiting him for a couple of weeks and then a reset. And I would come back and get back to life and sort of get back on the horse. And as I mentioned earlier in our talk today, I just kept meeting people and stepping through doors that open and just continuing to say yes when opportunities presented themselves. Because again, learning from these people at end of life that tomorrow's not promised man, when are you going to have this opportunity again? So, you know, there's always that old adage, what would you try if you know you could not fail? And honestly, to be candid, I think it's kind of bullshit. And here's why, because I think that fear when harnessed can be a very potent and powerful stimulator or motivant. Some of the largest accomplishments 
in history, whether it's business or politics, have happened because people were afraid that they wanted to try something new. So I don't think any of the the largest corporations or accomplishments happen because people didn't think they could fail. Like no one, no one climbed Everest for the first time because they thought that they might not die. Like that was it was that fear that drove them. But instead, I was given this gift of time from from my hospice, from my life. Uh, I, I didn't have anything to really go home to. And so instead I had this, this premise, what would you do if time was not a factor? And so think about life in general, like whether it's sporting events, whether it's your, your eight to five work life, whether it's your birthday, everything is based around time and time is, is the one finite, like there's, there's a limit to it. And I was given this gift of time where I thought, I don't have anything to go back to. It's kind of like when I was talking about my my friends from Switzerland who said, well, you know, you're not married. You don't have kids. You don't have a job. You only have a dog. What are you going home for? And so I had this opportunity. So I took it. And as doors kept opening, I kept stepping through. And so a couple of weeks turned into nearly two years on the road. And wow, it absolutely changed my life and just helped me re-cement this this foundation that time is our most valuable commodity and man don't screw around with it because you only have so much and, and the other thing i kind of pulled out of there too is what defines home what's sure. what's home it's like you know uh i think the the beautiful part of of uh travel by bike is that's home right that, that's mm-hmm. your home Right. That's, you know, you have nothing to worry about, you know, you know, there's no utilities to pay, you know, the only, the only fuel you need (laughs) for your furnace is bananas kind of thing. Like, you know, it's, (laughs) it's such a simple life and, and it's, it's especially what's, what's so gratifying sometimes about, or I felt it even, you know, I, I talk about the divide all the time, but it's so present but you're you're in in a certain situation where it's like pouring rain and it's cold and it's snowy and you're wet and and but you look down at your rig and it's like well I have everything I need. Yeah. Everything. I've got food. I didn't have a stove, but you know, I have I have food, I have water, I have a tent, I've got my down, I've got I've got dry clothes packed in my bag. So I have everything I need right now. So if it gets too gnarly and I get too fearful about moving forward, I can always just build my house. And then get into there and just hide away for a little bit. Yeah. You're, so, you're not going to die, right? Well, no, you're not. I mean, not, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people were pulled out of Canada on the divide this year. A lot of people oh, okay. were hitting their SOS buttons, right? It was, an, it was pretty gnarly. Okay. Um, I think I was just ahead of it. I was just ahead of the gnarliness, you know, like it, it just the amount of snow that fell kind of after oh, I had passed through some sections. And I think people too, um, you know, I, 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 I I, I, I'm carefully, I'm saying this carefully, but I think a lot, uh, the, a lot of people were just not really prepared for that. Sure. You know, maybe they packed a little bit too light. I mean, you want to pack as light as you can, but also it's, it's hard to pack light when you're going from, you know, uh, winter basically in the Rockies, June is still winter pretty much yeah, up there, right? It's snowy sure. and crazy. And then going into the desert, it's like, how do you, how do you pack for that? And I didn't really want to leave anything behind. I'd finished with everything I had. Like I didn't mail anything back. Um, that was an ethos I wanted to carry through, start and finish with your your pack. That's, that's what I packed. Like that's that. what I'm bringing. The only thing I dumped was my bear. 
Yeah. The only thing I dumped was my bear spray at a certain point. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. I needed the room to put a big old two-liter bottle of water there. So Yeah, you get, I, you get through Montana, you're, you should be in the home stretch. Yeah, except there's all the bears. dogs in New Mexico that are chasing you down. I was like, shit, I wish I had my bear spray. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, where like what's home? What like What's home? You know, home. I mean, my, again, going back to my sister, um, she's a digital nomad, man. She she works remotely, and she's in India right now, and and spends nice. time in in Central America, Central Central America, and she just she just does her thing, and she works, and she does a great job, and and um, so yeah, what is home, right? Yeah. Uh, well. I lived in Boulder, Colorado for about 25 years, moved there in probably 94 at the age of 20. So I came back from traveling and living on my bike, living simply. And every, my job every day is, you know, for Ryan the divide is just to get through the day and see the sights. And for me, get to the next village, next town, find a place to sleep, find some food to eat. And it's this amazing freeing feeling of this is, this is my job today and that's it. And yeah, I, I was definitely not carrying more than I needed to. I, I think I had two pair of socks, one pair of underwear, one pair of bike, chamois, etc. I mean, I was, I was going light, but I wasn't compromising. So I still have what I call, I guess, going out clothes with me because you can't show up in a village just wearing bike stuff. Like you have to have some clothes, but you know, to your point, I, I carried everything. I had four seasons. So I had down jackets and sleeping bags and everything else, but what is home? Like that was definitely my home for a period of two years and it was incredible. But then living this simple life in, in the mountains, whether it's in Kyrgyzstan or in the North in Israel or in the Himalayas in India, Nepal or the Tibetan plateau, that was home. But at, at some point, I definitely missed community because traveling in these places where English isn't the first language, I like to, I'm sarcastic. I, I tell jokes. I, I'm just, you know, everyone's got a personality and it's really hard to have a personality when you can't really joke with people, when you can't be sarcastic, you can't have quick witted banter. And so after a while, I did suffer through this, what I would call travel fatigue. And I was in Thailand and I was fortunate to, to meet someone who's actually from Colorado who was living, uh, who's living in Chiang Mai and teaching uh, in a school over in, uh, in Thailand. And it was just cool because I got to hang out with her for a while and we watched old Seinfeld clips on YouTube and no one would get it. Right. To, no one would right. get that. In and, Thailand. And I got well, to just probably. talk normal language as opposed to very abbreviated broken English, which was great. And it was that little couple of weeks reset that I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to keep going. And from there, I kept going north into the east into China. But I needed that sort of reset, that time to recharge my batteries to to be Jerry again. Because after a while, you, it's it becomes exhausting to, to speak in a certain way and to answer the same four questions 60 times a day. Where are you from? Where are you going? Et cetera, et cetera. And I get it. It's people's desire to connect. And I, and I love that. But there are certain times where, I, you know, you get a little worn down. But I guess long story long is that when I came back from traveling after two years and I came back to Boulder, which is a beautiful town and I love it. I went to college there. I essentially grew up there. For whatever reason, it just didn't seem to fit me anymore, even though my family's there, my friends were there, everything I know is there. 
I had the opportunity to move to the mountains to a much smaller community in Breckenridge, Colorado. And this place has definitely felt like home to me. I've built a community here. I've got friends here and it's, it's been just an amazing experience. And I'm so fortunate, but I guess, you know, to your question is, is where is home? And I, I guess it's becomes, how do you define it? And for me, it's, it's all about having that community. It goes back to that, that Harvard study that we need to surround ourselves with good people because people are healthy. Connections are healthy. And I've just been really fortunate everywhere I've went to, to find that place. Yeah. Especially over the last couple of years, you know, sure. through pandemic and the isolation that people experienced. And I think it, it's, it's, it's been so um, profound to, 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 to realize just how important it is to be connected to other people in, yeah. in our village. And um, yeah, I, th- I, I think that coming out the other side, every, everyone's experiencing that. I, f- I feel like, um, most people are, are just, um, one, actually, I think the pandemic showed a lot of people's true colors, right? Like people you didn't, hmm. you know, like, uh, like, uh, you know, the whole, um, um, science deniers and anti-vaxxers and like, there's all these silos, <laughs> silos of people who feel different things about different things. And it's like a lot of that came out and a lot of the stuff going on in Canada right now, it's like. Uh, people are flying the Canadian flag upside down and there's stickers oh. on people's trucks. say fuck Trudeau and, and wow. uh, our prime minister. And, and yeah, I mean, my, my take on it is like, man, could you imagine if you were in a position of power in a pandemic hit and you were like, what the fuck do we do? What do we do? What are we doing? How do we do this? How do we get through this? How do we support our nation and allow yeah. them to stay afloat over the next two years financially? You know, I, yeah. I, I think, you know, and, and even you were mentioning your, your buddy in the CDC, right? You know, it's, it's like, yeah. well, how do we do this? Like, we've never been through a pandemic before, you know, let's, we have to figure it all out on the fly. And there's so many people who are judgy and like, that person's lying and that's happening and this is happening and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's like, so the pandemic showed yeah. all these silos, political silos and ideological silos, but at the same time coming out the other side, I think there seems to be a little bit more connection happening. I feel like people are a little bit more open and, and uh, receptive and understanding. And like, I feel that way anyway, like I, I'm a pretty open guy anyway, but, but it's, it's true. It's, it's like that whole idea of, of traveling and um, you know, that, that, and you probably experienced this at length, but you know, your ego just dissolves because it's just you, you're so vulnerable out in nature, just, you know, walking through these mountains in Morocco in a crazy country um, and you're so vulnerable and then to have people come by and like show their generosity and their kindness and their understanding and giving you beds yeah. and giving you food, you know, in some of these places I can imagine like uh, the piece I read this morning is uh, Mohammed, you sit down and Mohammed comes out and he's got like walnuts and honey and tea and, and all these things <laughs> for you. And he's like, Oh, this is very expensive. And you're like, Oh, Oh, Really? Oh, I don't want to. He's like, no, 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 no. Eat, eat, eat it. Right. Generous. So yeah. generous. Right. And yeah, walnuts in the mountains. Like, how? Where does that come from? Right. They probably have <laughs> to truck it in, or they they bring it in. And yeah. So, so that kind of generosity is 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 um, is amazing. And it's it, that's the stuff that, like you said, it's not it's not necessarily all about the bike. It's just about mm-hmm. the experiences and the people and the like. You could have been hiking on foot, or you could have been on a, on a motorcycle traveling through the mountains that way. And, and people would still be generous and, 
it's it's not about the vehicle it's about the experiences well i think that's true to a point and here's what i mean by that i think the bike is this amazing medium that allows you to travel the places at a certain speed so hiking is obviously it's significantly slower i think a motorcycle is significantly faster and there's just something about the sweet spot of pedaling and also with the bicycle the world can relate to bicycles. Bicycles are everywhere. Everyone in, I say everyone, most people in the world can have access to a bicycle, but not to a car or a truck or a motorcycle. And there's something that just kind of creates natural bonds and natural curiosity. So there's a, a part of Northeast India, this region called Assam, that I swear is home to some of the kindest people in the world. And it's, it's, it's not a dramatic Himalayan region. It's just, it's very flat. It looks like, it looks like Nebraska in the United States. Like it's just very flat and farmland and just, just very basic. And I was pedaling through there. It was almost as if I couldn't pedal more than a kilometer before somebody would stop and want me to pull over and take a selfie with them because they were just naturally curious. I mean, there were people who would be traveling the other direction, would flip it around, chase me down and stop me and just want to talk to me and make that connection. So something about bikes, it's just, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just this natural curiosity, this natural glue that sort of bonds people together and if you if you hop on a bus or a train or you drive in a car and you're going from say mumbai to new delhi to Kathmandu, like you'll still get to those places and, and you'll see what the people there want you to see but it's all those people along the way it's all those stories that's where the true color of the journey comes from and i think if you just hop on a bus i think you you miss the true beauty of things you know it's kind of like I forgot there was this old adage, maybe an old Alan Watts quote, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. And he talks about, we don't go to a concert just for the encore. And what that means is you want to see the entire show. So if you're just trying to get from A to B, like, yeah, it's going to be great. But it's the stuff in between is is what is the the true beauty of the journey. Yeah, and also actually thinking about thank thanks for thanks for pushing back on that. I appreciate that, and I think there's also going to a concert. Uh, it's not just for the encore, and it's it's for the music, but there's also it's for the energy. It's for being in an environment with a whole bunch of other people who can appreciate what's going on. Yeah, um, and it would be like you know, um, I don't get a lot of time to bike pack for pleasure. Usually, it's an event and on, on account of having a family, but. It's like when you go to a grand depart, it's like you're instantly friends with everybody, <laughs> right? Because everyone's yeah, just on sure. the same, the, the nervous energy and the, yeah. and just the whole vibe of all those people. It's like being, being in a, in a huge, like in a stadium with a whole bunch of like-minded people for the most part watching a performance there. It's like the music's great, but it's just the energy, the people around you. They're just everyone. It's just that level of stoke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously so many adventures, Talk to me about the book, uh, The World Spins By, The Gift of Time, ah. Love, and the Long Bike Ride Back to Myself. Tell me a bit about that, the catalyst yes. for that book. So I wrote a book, and unlike, I don't know, unlike probably a lot of people, I didn't wake up one day and decide I wanted to write a book. I was never that kid who fantasized about writing a book. You know, I fantasized about working in business, working in banking, and obviously that didn't pan out. But 
there are there are a lot of people who have thought about writing a book and they're going to set off on this amazing journey and come back and, and write a story about it. And I'll see that that was never me. I just was given this this gift of time and I took off on this this bicycle adventure and was able to experience these incredible things, these connections. And I started just writing stories. You might call them a blog, but those are for basically my my parents back home, some of my friends when I was traveling to places that they had never heard of and didn't know where they were. And it was just to let them know that, hey, I'm safe, I'm having a good time and and life is good. And it wasn't until I came home from this travels that people not named mom and dad started saying like, hey, these are these are interesting. And maybe you should think about something else on a larger scale with that. And honestly, again, I hadn't really thought about writing a book and the, the idea of just writing a book about some guy riding his bike through foreign countries, it just seemed a little bit shallow. But then I realized that there was a deeper story there. It's talking about the hospice that I ran for 10 years, the the losses that I that I incurred, the the battles that I had fought and lived to tell about, and all those lessons along the way and how those lessons learned became lessons lived along the way. And so the story talks about, again, Cool Hand Luke with my my Korean War veteran father to going to business school and working in soulless jobs for 10 years before having the opportunity to run a hospice and learned that the greatest commodity is time. And then having my own couple of sucker punches that knocked me down for minutes and was able to take off on what was supposed to be a four-week trip and turned into nearly two years. And all those lessons lived along the way. And what was the writing process like for you? Like, was it uh, I, don't, I use the word easy very loosely, but but because you had all these stories stitched together, was it just a matter of combining your store, the blog, and then and then uh, maybe rewriting it, and then uh, following that common thread all the way through? Like, was it how was the process for you? Yeah, good question. So I, I did have a bunch of stories kind of written out that I was able to pull from. And if nothing else, again, those stories were meant just to be check-ins for my family and also just also just ways for me to a year from now, five years from now, reread where I was and sort of be back in that place to sort of really kind of the way like as adults now we flip back through through picture albums that our parents have in their basements. This was sort of my picture album to be able to go through and relive those experiences, those emotions. So I was able to put those together. But again, a story about just some guy in his forties riding his bike, just, just isn't that interesting. I've read some of those books and they don't work for me. So I started thinking about, well, because I ended up this in this place or this way, how did I get to here? Where, what was the common thread? What was the, the foundation? What was the driver? And then there are stories about my dad that came up. It's like, yeah, and it was almost therapeutic for me. It was almost like going to therapy, almost cathartic. Like, yeah, this is why I felt this need to to break away is because my dad was was very oppressive, very strict. And this this compassion that I was able to feel, like this was because of the hospice and all those experiences. And once I started thinking about the underlying threads, the things that got me to this place, it started to make more sense and then a more cohesive storyline started to develop. But again, it wasn't just me talking about riding a bike because 
I wouldn't want to read that if, even if it was my story. So it was, there's, there's the much deeper, what does it all mean? How are we spending our time uh, underlying thread through the storyline? Yeah. And I, and I think too, what's, what's interesting just talking about, you know, th- those two indelible chapters of your life, like your, 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 and, and I know you're saying this with love and gratitude towards your father, but your yeah. father's strictness, um, the, the, the lessons learned in the hospice, it's like every, everyone has a story to tell, right? Everyone, <laughs> every and everyone is shaped by, um, moments in their life. Um, like working with my coach Paige and I was saying to her, it's like, yeah, but I, f- I feel like I have, I've lived a fairly, I feel like I've lived a fairly privileged life. I haven't had oh, a lot sure. of trauma in my life. Like when I hear stories, um, from other people, their traumatic stories. I'm like, holy shit. Like, that's crazy, crazy stuff. And it's like, I didn't have any of that, but, but Paige is like, no, we all have trauma. Everyone has trauma and trauma is, is a spectrum, right? Um, yeah. you know, so when, when we go back and, and look in our, in our, in our, in our histories of life, we, we can, put a finger on these different moments that happened in our life that's shaped us into the person that we are, you know, that's either something that's in our nature or something someone said to us, you know, or the way someone made us feel. And then we, we latch onto those things and we carry them through life and it makes us, it makes us who we are. And so you coming out the other side of, of say just those two indelible moment chapters of, of, of growing up, um, you use the word oppressed, but it it sounds like that that's that can have negative, uh, heavy <laughs> negative. Yeah, um, it's a strong word. It is a strong word. Um, but coming from say a, a, an oppressed, strict upbringing, and then hospice, and taking those things, and then coming out the other side, and just spreading your wings, right? It's like yeah. I can I'm free now. I can spread my wings. I can take all the lessons learned that I've throughout my entire life, and carry that on to the next chapter. And, and I resonate with that just with my life, the way my, you know, the punch in the face I've just sustained, um, with, with going through separation is that, you know, I can look back through my past relationships now as a 50 year old man with a bit more wisdom and say, you know what? Yeah, I might've been an asshole there. Or, you know what? I didn't make that decision correctly. Or, you know what? Uh, so you take all this, all the, all the wisdom and the lessons you've learned. And I, and I even don't like using the word failure. I wrote a blog post about that. It's like, it's not a, if it's not a, whether you win or lose, it's whether you win or learn. Right. It's like, ah. and I try to teach that to my son because he's struggling right now with, with, um, stuff. He just carries a lot of fear and anxiety about trying new things. And it's like, I'm trying to tell him, it's like, you gotta try new stuff and you're not going to just because you fall down on your ice skates or, or fall off your bike, you know, to be, um, you know, relevant. It's like, you just, you got to get back up and try it again, you know, and, and take the, take the lesson that you learned and maybe tread more carefully next time or, um, go somewhere where it's flatter in practice or, you know, you're not going to be the best at everything. Right. But you got (laughs) to just keep trying. Like I'll go away for a race I'll come back. He say, "Hey, Daddy, did you win?" And it's like, huh, "No, I didn't win, man. <laughs> no, there's no winning, but I won because I finished. Like, like the tour divide, right? It's like, no, I didn't win. It took longer than I wanted it to, but I finished, 
and I got to the yeah. to the end. And to me personally, that's a win. You know, to me, it's like I'm not Sofiane Seely. You know, ripping it off in two weeks. I'm not that guy. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, I sure. don't. I have no desire to 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 be that guy. Mm. Um, but I wanna I wanna still dip my toes in different waters and and try things out and you know learn from these experiences. So, so I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just, I just think that it's, it's, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, people writing books about adventure, but, but sometimes there's not really, it's like, eh, you know, stories about people's adventures, but even in the two pieces that I, I read about, uh, your travels, um, on jerrycopack.com. So people should go check it out is that, yeah, you ended the two with, with, with that same common thread. It's like, you know, here's my adventure. Here's how hard it was. And here's what I learned coming out the other side. And I think that's the important part about these adventures. Yeah. You start talking about, you know, perspectives, right? So think about, I read this somewhere that if everyone threw their problems in a pile, we would probably grab our own problems back because you have no idea what someone's story is. You have no idea what they're going oh, through. We have this, we, we have this sort of preconceived myopic outlook on life that my problems are the worst. And my dad for as strict as he was, he was really good about putting, about helping me frame that. So whether it was sports, like, hey, someone's probably outworking you right now. Someone's training harder for soccer or for something else. Or you think you've got it bad, like you have no idea. Someone else has it way worse than you do. And it just really helped me keep that in perspective. And it wasn't until this point, I was probably 34 years old, a couple years into running the hospice, I wrote this chapter in my book called the sweet potato that changed my life and how it happened was I was coming back from a bike race in Colorado and it was the fall. It was, it was cyclocross. If you know what cyclocross is, so it was wet and sloppy and muddy and all the things that that race is supposed to be, but I was cold and came home was about to jump in the shower and just kind of clean up and warm and clean off and warm up. Before that I grabbed a sweet potato and most people, before they put it in the microwave to cook it, they would poke holes in it with a fork. For whatever reason, I, I still don't know this to this day, 15 years later, I chose a butter knife. So as I'm kind of chopping down, stabbing the sweet potato, my hand slips down the handle of the, of the butter knife and my pinky just kind of slides along the very not sharp edge of the butter knife and it nicks a tendon. And so I'm like, all right, well, that's going to need a stitch. Right. And so at the time I'm still uh, working in healthcare, running a hospice. So I call up someone at the hospital and say, Hey, this is Jerry. And figured I had, I knew some people down there. I'm just going to come down there and get a stitch. I said, I cut my finger and I, I need a stitch. Pretty simple stuff. And get down there and the attending doctor, she says, uh, okay, well we can give you a stitch, but we're going to see you back here tomorrow morning for surgery. I said, what are you talking about? It's like, you cut a tendon. You're a young man. If you ever want to be able to use this finger again, and I suggest that you do, you're going to need to have surgery. And so it's like begrudgingly, you know, it's, I'm going to have to have surgery. It's going to cost some money and I'm going to have to be in this splint. And what that translated to me is like, I am not going to be able to ride a bike. I'm not going to be able to function for a period of about eight weeks. And so I don't know if you know mus much about muscle atrophy, but muscle breaks down, decomposes, atrophies very rapidly. So here I am, flash forward, four weeks later, five weeks later, six weeks later, I have this, this poor me 
hope you look around the office at the hospice every day. And my mom is, she's, she's being my mom. She's being supportive. And one day before I'm getting set to go into a meeting, she looks at me and you know, my bottom lip is just dragging on the floor. Cause I'm super depressed. She go, okay, what's wrong? I was like, ah, you know, I haven't been able to ride my bike. I haven't been able to do this or that. And it, it just, it's just bumming me out. And like my mom would have been, I don't know, 30 years earlier, she just looks at me. And if you know my mom, one of her favorite things, she says, what is wrong with you? She's like, look where you work, man. Like you work in a hospice. People around you are dying. In fact, one of our staff just got diagnosed with breast cancer and you're complaining about your finger. Are you kidding me? Knock it off. And it was just like this metaphorical slap across the face when, I don't know, a three-year-old is just in a complete inconsolable tantrum that you kind of have to shock them out of that to, to get them to realize like, oh, hey, I'm being an a-hole. And, and I was. And it was at that moment, and I've never forgotten it ever since, that, man, you don't know what someone else is going through and check yourself. So it's, it's kind of like you're talking about perspective shifts, right? It's like, you're talking about when you've been on the divide and maybe you're looking at like an, an elevation profile on your GPS and this next hill, when you zoom way in, it looks huge. Like this is going to suck. But when you zoom out and you look at it from a larger perspective, like it's but a blip. And it kind of goes back to that concept of in five days or five weeks or five months, will this matter? Like you've got to have some perspective in life. Yeah, it's easy to lose uh, perspective and to lose context, right? Yeah, like, I, I, I've been there too, where you just like, yeah, you have this this minor injury that's holding you back, and you're just like, mm, poor me, pity party type. That yeah, that pity party thing. That's a that's a triggering phrase for me, but I'm not going to get into that now. But, um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, it's it is perspective, and it's so easy for us to forget, you know, like that that things could be so much worse. You know, and, and then, um, you know, we could, we could also die tomorrow. Yeah. We, I, I could die in my sleep tonight, not to get morbid, but it's, it's just like, you know, there's, there's, there's no telling how it's going to all go down. Right. Right. And, and did you use your time? Well, did you use your time? Well, yeah. 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 Um, what do you do now? (laughs) How do you make a living now? Uh, I coach and teach cross country skiing. Oh, cool. In the wintertime. Great. I guide some bike tours in the summer. Uh, I'm hustling, selling books. And I also do some financial reporting, some brain work for an organization called warm showers. Oh, you do do work for them. That's cool. Yeah. So I sit on their board of directors. I do some financial reporting, do some, uh, some operational guidance, and I'm also starting to co-host some of their other podcasts called Bike Life. So isn't, isn't, I've got my hands in about four or five different things. Awesome. Isn't podcasting the best? It's it's fun because, again, it goes back to that human experience. Yeah. And I, I love talking to people, meeting people, and, and, te- and telling stories. And so you were on the Great Divide, so you probably rolled right by my house in Breckenridge because the Great Divide comes through comes through where I live. And so through warm showers, I'm able to sort of give back. So all those times that I was hosted in people's homes, whether it was in India or China or Madagascar or Kyrgyzstan, I get to now host people who are traveling either on the Great Divide or the 
Transamerica or the Colorado Trail. And people who are just looking for a place to sleep, maybe to do some laundry, maybe take a shower or just have a warm meal. I get to invite people into into my house and meet people on a very limited time frame. And it's just so great to be on the other side of hosting people and meeting people and hearing their stories and hearing their enthusiasm and their excitement and all the things they discover. Because maybe it's their first time bikepacking and it's like, wow, it was really scary. But then they found their groove and it's just every day is this new experience, this new challenge. And it's, it's cool to see it through someone else's lenses, through someone else's eyes. And it's, it's kind of like, if you ever saw the movie dead, dead poet society with Robin Williams. Long time so ago. there's right. So there's a point where he's got his kids in the classroom and he gets up on top of his desks and he invites kids to do the same, to get up on top of his desk. And the point is it's important to continuously look at the world from a different perspective and hosting people, talking to people like you or some of the people I meet on my podcast or just coaching skiing, like just these experiences, like, man, everyone is different, but at the same time, we're not that different. People People are just people. They're kind. They're curious. They're generous. They're empathetic. Like I just, I don't think that the rest of the world are. I don't think the people are bad. And so I think if there's sort of one takeaway from all the traveling, is that I've learned essentially is that people are just people, and it traveling makes you less of an asshole because you you get to <laughs> yes. see these perspectives, right? Yeah. And so we, we have yeah, these fears sure. that we, we see on television, read the news, like, Oh, those people over there and what's happening and don't go there. It's scary. Like it closes your mind off to these experiences. It closes your heart off. It, it, it sort of stifles your, your curiosity. And I think the more you travel, the more you realize, the more it gets enforced that people are just people. I think that's how we save the world without trying to be too grandiose, but that's essentially it. Well said. I have a huge last question for you. Yeah, man. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Oh, good one. <laughs> I love that. That's the one you uh, hate. So when my, the, when my the, boss when the person on the reserve sorry. also asked me that question. <laughs> uh, that's what I was leaning into. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't see myself here five years ago. I didn't see myself writing a book five years ago. I didn't see myself living in Breckenridge five years ago. And I flashed back five years before that. I didn't see myself not running a hospice. I didn't see myself in some tiny village in, in rural India. So, gosh, like, how do you know? I would love to keep doing this. I'd love to keep talking to people like you. I'd love to keep inspiring people. I would love to sell a million books, not because I want to be J.K. Rowling, but because I think there's an important message in my story that live now, meet people, experience life. You get one shot at this thing, so don't waste time. And so if I can if I can inspire 100 people or 1,000 people or a million people to sort of live with that mantra, I think that's great. Um, but in, until, until Oprah starts returning my phone calls and puts me on the Oprah's book club, like, you know, I'm just going to keep hustling and keep telling people and keep putting these books in people's hands. But in five years, I don't know, man, like I'm happy, but I'm, I'm living every day as, as full as I can. I really enjoyed this conversation, Jerry. I, I, I had a feeling it was going to be a good one. Um, but my expectations were exceeded, I think. Yeah, man, it's uh it's always fun talking to uh to a similar kindred soul about uh, about life and experiences. Yeah, so I want to I want to thank you for your time and 
before we wrap up, why don't you just tell people where they can find you? What's the best place they can find Jerry Kopak? Yeah, I've got a website. It's simply jerrykopak.com, J-E-R-R-Y-K-O-P-A-C-K.com. And same thing in Instagram, at Jerry Kopak. You can find me, find out what I'm doing in my world, whether it's the day-to-day minutia of biking to work through two feet of snow in Breckenridge <laughs> to go teach skiing, to whatever adventure I might be on, to if you want to order a copy of my book, it's all there. Come right find on. me, come reach out. And if you're rolling through Breckenridge, I got a guest room for you. Right on, Jerry. Thank you. All right, man. That was great. What a great yeah. chat. Fuck, that was awesome. <laughs> it's easy, right? Well, no, sometimes. Um, I haven't had too many, um, like, quote, bad conversations um, you know what I mean? Like, they're always okay, but sometimes, sometimes they can, it, it can be hard to just generate the energy, you know? Yeah, sure. But yeah, that's that sympathetic, sympathetic resonance thing happening again. So I appreciate you and, yeah, and I, everything you shared. You interviewed a buddy of mine last year, I think, uh, from Boulder, uh, Ryan Van Duzer. Oh yeah. Ryan. Do you guys ride together? Uh, we haven't. It's funny. Like we, we definitely run in the same circles, but we haven't done any adventuring together and it just, it just hasn't happened. And I, I, we keep trying to make it happen and I don't know, time just doesn't line up, but he's a super good dude. He's yeah. obviously the happiest guy in the world. He's, I feel like I'm a pretty happy dude and that dude yeah. is like doubled me. So it's a super kind human. It's funny. I might leave this in actually while we're talking about this, but um, um, again, I, I've been talking about my, my coach a lot lately because uh, she's helped me so immensely. But I, I was comparing myself to someone, like comparing, mm. which is so bad to compare yourself to other people. It is. But it's like, man, I just, I just wish I could be more like, like this dude, because he just seems so happy, and he's so energetic, <laughs> and he's so positive. And this would include Ryan, actually, since we're talking about him. Um, this is my my friend Kelly, and uh, he's just, and he's a dad, and he, he just has this great attitude in life. And what my coach said, she goes, you know what, Steve, oftentimes, and you, you have to remember this, all these traits that you see in, in Kelly or in Ryan, you identify with those traits because you possess those traits already. Oh, good. So you're, despite you thinking that you want to be that person, you'd like to be more like that person and have that attitude with that, similar to that person, you are that person, right? And it's it's the people that you look at or encounter that you don't resonate with um you don't understand them you can't come to an understanding about them it's like those are the traits that you actually don't possess so you can't relate to those people so the fact that you even recognize the traits in someone like ryan van duzer or my buddy kelly is it it means that you already possess those traits i love that it's interesting right and then when i when i I never thought, thought about it yeah when i thought about it i'm just like thinking you know like like what I talked about a couple times in here, like that sympathetic, sympathetic resonance and vibing with people like you and I, or like, like Jonathan or a lot of the people I talk to on the podcast, I think they're coming from a like-minded, um, um, scope of people, right? Like the people who I get on the podcast are people that I resonate with or people who reach out to me like you who said, I want to be on your podcast. It's like, yeah, you want to, because by listening to me, you've, you've, oh, I vibe with that guy, you know, like we share the same, some of the same traits. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting. So, so it's, it's, uh, that's given me, that's been a huge point of personal growth for me is like, 
the people you jive with and the people that you resonate with are likely that way because you possess the same traits. And you should not be so hard on yourself thinking that you're not that person when in fact you are. Yeah, I've actually never thought about it until you brought it up. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there's some value to that because it's easy to think like, ah, that person is an asshole or I don't get along with that person because yeah, maybe you don't have that common thread. And it goes back to at the end of the day, man, like you don't know what that person's going through. Like the person who cuts you off on the highway, like, I don't know. Like my, my partner and I, we talk about this, like, well, I don't know. We make these little, these little stories like, well, that guy, it's it's easy for people to say like you know f that guy flip him off and ride his tailgate and get revenge and like all it does it just hurts you but so instead we flip it and we like oh that guy is uh he's late for work or his wife's going into labor we make up these little funny stories to realize to try to figure out why that guy is flying by us and driving like such an asshole and so it, it makes it it sort of defuses it yeah, so, I, I hear you. I used to commute back you, and forth. You don't know what someone's story is. Totally, totally. I used to commute back and forth from from Squamish to to Vancouver, uh-huh. uh, and it's it's only about forty five minutes. I could be on my desk in an hour when I I worked for IntroWest as a mobility analyst for uh, IntroWest. Wow. Yeah, yeah, right for the for the states. <laughs> so I, actually, uh, most of my uh, BlackBerry users were uh, like um, snowshoe. Well, a lot of them are in snowshoe, and um, uh-huh. uh, I can't remember something. It's a long time ago. But anyway, I used to commute and it's funny. I, 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 I would encounter those assholes, but also I admit I was a fucking asshole sometimes too. Right. Especially <laughs> in the evening. What's funny. Just, this is so funny. Total tangent. But when I would drive down in the morning across the Lionsgate bridge to get into Vancouver, it's a three lane bridge. So when you come into town in the morning, it's two lanes into town. And then in the afternoon it's two lanes out. So there's a couple, you come from North Vancouver and West Vancouver, and there's all these roads that kind of merge onto this three-lane bridge, and everyone's commuting, so it's bananas. In the morning, it was like doing up a zipper. All the cars would just like super behave, and everyone would just merge behind each other, and no one was trying to cut each other off, and it was just like, you know, perfect. It was mm-hmm. like, it was almost like watching AI at work. In the, <laughs> in the afternoon, it was every man for his fucking self. It's just like everyone wants to get out of town and people are cutting each yeah. other off. It was just it's such an interesting cultural observation. My point is when I had kids, now I drive like a dad. I totally drive like a dad and it's the best because it's like go on the speed limit. I'm going yeah. to fo- follow that car. I don't give a fuck. Because, we'll get there when you get there. Yeah, because you know I have, you know, I might have kids in the car. Um, sure. that's not to say that sometimes I'm, I'm not a bit of a dick, um, depending <laughs> on, on who's being a dick in front of me, but, but I have to check myself sometimes. Like, dude, just drive like a dad. Like I drive, yeah. you know, my, my partner loaned me her, uh, grand caravan, her Dodge caravan. So, you know, it's, it's not a fast car, <laughs> you know? So, well, and I think it, it, uh, sort of diffuses your anxiety. Like if you're not in that mental state where you got to try to make up time and get around this guy and why is the guy going so slow, get out of the left lane. You just realize like, I'm going to get there five minutes later than I thought. It's just such a more relaxing experience. Yeah. Like, so I, I saw this thing, uh, it was like a bumper sticker. It, it simply read like, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. Yeah. Like the, you, you, yeah. you, you forget your role in, in the, in the grand scheme yeah. of the world. That's really so it's not, point. it's not everyone else. Like, dude, you're part of this. Yeah. Like you're here too. Yeah. So don't be so blamey. Yeah. That's really, really good. And it's like, these are, uh, I heard a buddy of mine say this once when, uh, he was, 
commuting with his girlfriend and the girl girlfriend was just like oh my god the traffic oh my god and he was like this these are your traveling buddies today and we're all going <laughs> we're all going here we're all road tripping right. together and this is how fast it's going especially through like the between like um uh like vancouver to say hope bc anyone who's canadian will know that that trip through the valley it's just it could be just so slow and there's just all these slowdowns and it's like well these are your travel buddies today and yeah. And you're right. In the grand scheme of things, it, five minutes is probably being generous. You're talking maybe 30 seconds, you know, in the right. grand scheme of things. It's like it's really not slowing you down that much. Cutting people off, changing lanes. You're getting yeah. yourself all worked up. You're you're going to save five minutes, but you're going to take yeah. like five years off your lifespan. Yeah. Or what's that scene in, do you remember the movie Office Space? Office Space. Like, say, right? I knew it was going there. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy's like, gets in the fast lane and it stops. Shit, gets yeah. in the other lane and it stops. It's like, there's you can't, yeah. you can't win. You'll never win. No, I just ride it out, man. Yeah, that's right. All right, man. Let's uh, let's land the plane uh, again. I appreciate you. Uh, had a yeah. really really good chat, and um, and yeah, I'll reach out for some photos and stuff like that. To uh, sounds for the awesome. Right I uh, I hope you get out and ride your bike or do something that uh, fills your cup today, man. You too. Right back at you. Okay. Cool. Yeah, cool, buddy. Love you, man. Talk soon. Yeah. Man. See ya. Okay. Bye. That was great. I am cool. <laughs> I want to thank Jerry again for his time and thank all of you for tuning in. I really enjoyed that conversation. Man, there's just so many things you can learn from other people's adventures. And I hope that it inspires you to you know, go out and have some adventures of your own. Because you know, getting outside the box is so important. We spend so much time in this first world culture, working, taking care of kids. You know, um, Sometimes there's barely any time to do stuff for ourselves. And I think it's so important that we take time at some point during the year, at any time during the year, whatever lights you up, to do something for you. And I think, you know, in that podcast I did with RJ, you know, we talked about selfishness. It's okay to be selfish. I think from time to time you need to be selfish because if you're not filling yourself up, there's no way you're going to be be able to fill other people up. So get out there and adventure. It could be just a two-hour hike one day. Or, you know, this weekend, um, you know, hook up with a friend you haven't seen for a while and reconnect with them. It doesn't even have to be a physical activity. It could just be reconnection. You're either reconnecting with nature, reconnecting with yourself, or reconnecting with other people. It's all super important. So promise me that you'll make a point every week to pull one of those levers. And then, of course, on top of it all, get lots of sleep. Sleep is so important. You know, it's so, sleep is so um, take it for granted, you know, but just for a couple of weeks, I want you to try just to go to bed an hour earlier. And the reason I'm talking about this now, this, this seems really kind of random, but I just did another conversation just this morning here. I'm in Canmore today and I connected with, with Stefan Barth in Germany of SBU coaching. And we had another great conversation and those, those who are subscribing for early access, you'll get that one soon. But, um, it, it, we, we talked at length about sleep and how most people are just not even close to getting enough sleep. And uh, there's lots of studies around that show that getting sleep is so important. And, uh, you know, just rest, you know, is super important, especially if you're training for something. Anyway, it's just super random tangent. Um, something else that I want you to be aware of is strength 
mobility. And Dynamic Cyclist can help you with that. MB40 is going to save you 25% when you sign up for a seven-day trial and continue on with their program. And you're going to save 25%. There, not, there aren't a lot of codes out there that save you that much. You get 10% codes or 15% codes, but 25% is huge. And I'm a huge fan of Dynamic Cyclist. And Dynamic Cyclist has been a great supporter of the My Back 40 podcast. And uh, Supporting them and getting onto their programs and saving 25% is a great way to, to support the podcast. So go ahead, use MB40, sign up for a seven-day free trial, save yourself 25% on those programs. You will thank me, and many have thanked me for hooking them up to onto Dynamic Cyclist, and um, your body will thank you. If you're not happy with your current training program, you're not having any fun or it's not fitting into your lifestyle, I want you to reach out to Ryan Draper at Cycling 101 and drop the code MB40 to save 50% off your first month of coaching. That's also a great deal. Ryan's a great coach. He's knowledgeable. He's experienced. He's been at it for a couple decades. So you know you're going to get an experienced coach that's going to give you a program that fits your lifestyle and will help you attain the goals that you're looking to do this summer. So don't forget, MB40, save 50% off your first month of coaching. I want to throw out another big thank you to Redshift Sports. Same code, MB40. I make sure I use the same code all over the place so you guys don't have to remember all these different codes. I've been running their suspension stem and seat post on my fat bike this winter, and all I have to say is, wow. It's like to take these two products, to put them on a fully rigid bike, you're basically giving yourself 20 to 35 millimeters of suspension on your fully rigid fat bike. Uh, on top of the suspension you get out of your low PSI tires, it's been so great and so comfortable. And the one thing I notice about the suspension seat post is how it adds traction. Um, it, it basically gives you positive traction on your rear wheel all the time. And in the winter, when you're climbing, that's what you need. You need that steady traction because as soon as you lose traction, spin out, your climb's done. So head on over to redshiftsports.com, drop the code MB40, and you're going to save 15%. I also want to thank Blivet Sports for supporting the podcast. Um, love their shit. <laughs> I really love their products. The one thing that's really been profound for me is the grip and pogey combo. The foam grips almost heat your hands. It's crazy. I've been not wearing gloves fat biking the last few rides I've gone on just as an experiment, and my hands haven't gotten cold. And what's great about that is you have good access to your brakes and your controls um, without having you know a bunch of thick material keeping you from your controls. I don't know. I really dig it. Um, and I've been down to so far about minus... 17, 18, 19, 20, just uh, barehanded inside these pogies with the foam grips, and I really dig them. Another thing I dig, which I never thought I would, are the tire covers. Um, when I when Patrick sent them to me, I was like, what am I, I don't know, what am I going to do with these? But they're great. When I bring my fat bike into my little apartment, I can put these tire covers on, and it protects my floors, my walls, um, and from from dirt and from the studs. And it's great. It's it just it's just a nice, clean way to store your bike. And also, when I throw the bike in the back of the van, it doesn't rip up the upholstery. Those studs are sharp, man. So I really, really like the tire covers as well. So head on over to BlivetteSports.com and check out their lineup. I don't have a code for you, but you're going to dig it. Trust me. I also want to thank Lakeside Bikes, Autolus, Spandex Panda. All these people have been great supporters of the podcast, and I couldn't do it without you. So thank you. That's all I've got thought I'd put a little bit of the advertising at the end to save you guys. I know you're probably getting tired of hearing the same ads all the time, but man, these people support me and I've got to mention them. And 
you support me as well. If you want to support the podcast, you can. Lots of ways to do it. Myback40.org slash support. I'm not going to get into it now. I've got Patreon, PayPal, lots of different ways. I'm hoping to restock my inventory soon with t-shirts and stickers for my Patreons. Not only am I giving you early access, but I do know that I owe some of you sticker packs and I'm going to get to it. I just don't have the capital right now to buy that stuff to send to you, but I will. I promise it's going to happen. So that's all I have. So until next week, until the next podcasts, keep the rubber side down.